0: You're listening to the CMS Podcast, and I'm Andrew Whitaker, Communications Manager for the Comparative Media Studies program at MIT. MIT Comparative Media Studies celebrated its 10th anniversary this month, so we threw a big bash inviting back all our alumni, welcoming MIT faculty and friends, and together getting a chance to look back over 10 years of an amazing program, and forward to 10 amazing years more. You can find all of the anniversary podcasts, and a huge array of other podcasts from CMS over the years, in the iTunes store, and on our website at cms.mit.edu.
1: I want to just thank everyone for turning out for this um, really special day. It's been, a, it's been an amazing 10 years. Um, when I think back on it, it's both been an eternity and a blink of an eye. And I just can't reconcile those two notions of time, but it's... Um, Yeah, as a temporal reality, it's a little strange. And I think that speaks to the intensity of the experience of the past 10 years. Um, Last night when I asked Henry the question uh, about legacy, what's his legacy, what's the CMS legacy, he said the magic word. And the word, of course, is community. It's the people. It's the initiatives. It's the inspiration and hard work that so many folks have contributed to make CMS what it is. Um, As I said last night, the work of CMS has been felt from the boardroom to the pages of the Chronicle of Higher Ed. It's been a paradigm changer. I think it's changed the way that we can work in the humanities here at MIT in ways that we can have very active and robust collaborations with folks in the technology sector, engineering, uh, sciences here at MIT, even Sloan, even Sloan. Um, (laughs) It's been a terrific way to uh, partner with the media industries, a sector that doesn't always work well with the Academy. And it's not necessarily the media industry's fault. It's also our fault. But this has been a, we've demonstrated, I think, in a really terrific way how that can be a, a, a productive partnership. Um, we've worked with media makers. And of course, we've worked very intensively with the, with the people that use media, that repurpose media, the people for whom media is part and parcel of their daily lives. Those have been, the, that's the driver in a sense, and it's really made that triangulation of thinkers and, 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 and makers and organizers and the folks who, who, who live this, and we all live it, um, it it's been really important. Um, CMS has offered as well, I think, our field, the field of media studies, a way forward. Frankly, the field is in a state of crisis. I'm not sure it recognizes it, although I think increasingly there's an awareness that medium-specific studies, film studies or TV studies or... Um, Journalism studies as standalones just don't work. And CMS has really offered a model, a working model, a robust and thriving model of a way forward. Our goal today is to discuss, as a community, various aspects of our work, to hear from our alum who've been out in the field now close to. Eight or eight or ninety. I guess the first class would, would have been out eight years now. To hear from them, how this experience at, at CMS, how their training has made a difference in their in their jobs and what they've been able to bring to the whatever sector of media they work in. Um, it's also we'd, we'd also like to hear about where we need to move ahead because obviously we're in a very fast changing terrain. Uh, and we've got to think about the next 10 years of CMS. So this isn't a retrospective uh, analysis, although retrospection is important. It's also about looking forward and seeing where we're going to head. This goes as well for our researchers, our faculty, and our friends, the greater CMS community. These are all people that have been very actively involved in thinking in fresh and new ways about the notion of media, the ways in which it, uh, 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 you know, interpenetrates our lives, Where have we been? Where are we going? Um, Okay, maybe I should just make a few announcements and then I will introduce uh, our first speaker today. Uh, As you can see, there's some other events on this floor. And so in terms of coffee breaks and stuff like that, you've got to actually go downstairs to the third floor, take the lift downstairs to the third floor, and a few steps, Out of the new media lab into the old media lab are our offices. And there we have um, coffee and refreshments. But we also have a lot of displays there of the work of our alum. So there are a lot of video uh, installations and projections uh, of of the work of folks in this room. And if you you haven't seen our headquarters, it's a chance to look at our splendiferous new setting. Its it's settings are really quite nice. So please drop down there, see the headquarters, and that's where the coffee breaks will be. the second thing I want to mention is that there will be a reception, and it should be a bash tonight at around seven. That'll be up here. It won't be in the big open space, but there's a, a room across from us, a big, a large event room. That's where it will be. We have three DJs lined up tonight, and I think at least two, maybe all three, are in this room: Vivek Bald, Ian Condry, our associate director, and Gener- Generoso Fiero, So that should be a blast. Um, I'd like to take this opportunity as well to thank a few people who've really worked hard to pull these events off. First, Sarah Wallison, Jessica Tatlock, and Justin Bland, our our core office staff. Let me just, first of all, say thank you for saving my life this year (laughs) in general. But also, this event, I mean, it was Seamless. I didn't feel it. These folks really carried it off. So I really want to thank them uh, very much for this for their hard work. I want to thank Brad Sewell. Brad has been an organizer of our big of our high end conferences. You know, for the last ten years, Media in Transition. Uh, he's helped a lot with Futures of Entertainment. And Brad was the, the the logician behind a lot of what's been happening these past couple of days. And as always, in this very quiet and and you know perfectionist manner. So Brad, thanks very much. Um, Andrew Whitaker, um, who's our director of communications, um, he's really working with some, I don't know if you notice the kind of propaganda you get about CMS, and you might notice lately more of it comes in my name than in the CMS name. And we track this stuff, I think, can I say this? We know who opens their mail and who doesn't, (laughs) Um, and we know that my name seems to open a little bit more than CMS alone, but that's going to change too, I think, because pretty soon those are going to go to the spam box, you know. Uh, but but Andrew has done some really wonderful and creative marketing for our program. And the newsletter, the 10th anniversary newsletter, which I hope you all are sure to get a copy of, is uh, the work of, of Andrew and uh, Brad, although I see my name a lot in that thing. I didn't know I did as much work on that as I, <laughs> as I did. Um, I'd also like to thank uh, Rick Eberhardt and especially Michael Rappa, who's just done a terrific job with the technical side of this operation, setting up the the... There's, when you go when you go down to our space, you'll see there's a lot of AV stuff set up to, as I said, to show the work of our alum and and Rick did uh, Yeoman's work, and last but not least, I'd really like to thank our research managers, um, Kurt Fent, uh, Philip Tan, uh, Scott Osterweil, and Dan Pereira. Um, it's their work, it's their leadership in these projects that have really yielded a lot of what we do at CMS. Erin Riley, as well, now moved with Henry to USC, but she's still around here sometimes. They're the ones who really have uh, helped, together with our students and our other researchers, to give direction and leadership to so much of the the good work we've been doing. Okay, It's got to be tough being a dean. It's not a job I envy, and a herder of cats comes to mind, and at a place like MIT where everything has a little extra zing, um, those cats can be persistent and maybe even wild sometimes. I particularly don't envy having to work with a group like CMS, Um, (laughs) a group that might be seen as a bit too precocious, too big for its britches, too demanding. It's got to be a challenge, particularly when groups like ours know with certainty that our mission is critical, that it's timely, that it's urgent. Um, Deborah has been patient with our rattlings of the cage, supportive of our mission, and a generous friend and supporter of CMS. Um, And I know it hasn't always been easy, (laughs) and it's not going to be easy in the future, but it's really been a productive relationship. So with that, Deborah, I'd like to just introduce you, uh, our Dean, Deborah Fitzgerald.
2: Thank you, William. Uh, it's, I won't say it's been easy, but it's been fabulous. And uh, I look forward to uh, many more years of, of working with CMS. First, let me just say thanks to you, William. Um, thanks to all of you for coming. Those of you who organized this, it's a, it's a gorgeous, uh, gorgeously produced event, I have to say that. Uh, and it's a, it's a real honor to be here. I want to say welcome back to, uh, to Henry and to Cynthia. Uh, great to see you here again. And uh, looking forward to talking more over the weekend. And and really, um, it's great to see so many alums and so many people who who have sort of got their start with CMS, with this version of CMS. I think it's a great testament, You know, thinking about the crowd that was uh, in Bartos yesterday. It's a wonderful testament to the power and strength of the program, that so many people feel that it is a fundamental part of their lives um, going forward. Thanks to all the students who took the plunge in the first place and came to MIT. Um, uh, to see what they could do with uh, media studies. Uh, many successes have come out of that over the 10 years. Um, and all of it has just made the school and made MIT better in, in so many ways. Uh, it has made the school more exciting, more intellectually ambitious, which is what we wish, those of us in the dean's uh, rooms, that's what we really wish for people is to be their most ambitious selves, their to do the things that are just barely possible to imagine doing. That's what we want to see, and CMS does it better than anybody. Um, You're you're also more daring, uh, more connected to the world, making us more connected to the world. I'm interested to see the applied humanities um, prompts up here, because that really is something that uh, occupies a lot of of my mind. Thinking about how the humanities can really reinvent um, themselves as as time goes forward, it's clear that we're in a moment of change and challenge. And how we handle that, how we envision the future is extremely important, not just for us at MIT, of course, but all over the country and the world. Uh, I'm grateful to the faculty who have been with CMS uh, all this time, um, mentoring the students, coming up with new projects, uh, developing their ideas, and to the visitors, of which there are many, many of you. Uh, you've all contributed, and I'm very, very grateful because you make, you make us look good, you make us feel good, you, you challenge us, and, and it's all been a positive. I think what I'm really curious about is what we'll be saying at the 20th anniversary. You know, What will we be looking back on fondly, quaintly, as those things that uh, we could just barely even remember, they were so, um, uh, I don't know, so transient, uh, that to, right now to us seem very powerful. What will we be looking back on? You know, who will be the stars in 10 years? Who will be the students who go on to great uh, fame and fortune and, and leadership, in fact, in the field? And in the world, in the, in the companies, in the, in the academy, uh, w- wherever uh, you will find yourselves, Who will be the opinion leaders in 10 more years? Uh, You know, what technologies will already be passe by then? I don't think we're going to be tweeting in 10 years. I don't know what we're going to be doing. We might not even be emailing if we're lucky. Uh, But who knows? What will the technologies be? Which ones are we going to just completely invent and eliminate in this short period of time? What will we be studying in 10 years? How will CMS remain a cutting-edge program? How will it lead the world? in the next iteration. What connections across campus will be robust? Which ones will have faded away? This is such such a moving um, program, and that's part of its its virtue and and excitement and attraction, frankly, because it's always going somewhere. And predicting it is kind of a waste of time, but really thinking ahead, planning ahead is very exciting, and it's hard to figure out what the next big thing is, and I think that's a strength, not a weakness. MIT and the School of Humanities, Arts, and Social Sciences um, have been very, very fortunate, I'd say, um, to help CMS realize some of its ambitions. We're not there yet, folks, but we have I think you have made a great start. And we are deeply honored to be a continuing supporter, a collaborator, and strategist in creating a future that's worthy of CMS's accomplishments and its promise going forward. Thank you. <coughs>
1: Thanks very much, Deborah. Um, I forgot to thank. Actually, we have folks who've really come from far to be here today, from um, from PRC, from Taiwan, even from the Netherlands. Uh, so it's really thank you. Thanks very much, uh, those folks who've made the effort from Austin, from all over the place. So it's really glad you could be here to join us. Um, I want to pick up on a point that Deborah made in terms of segueing over to the. Uh, this notion of applied humanities, transforming humanities education. As Deborah says, it's a very, it's a very interesting moment. Uh, there's a ton of soul searching right now. Places like Chicago have spent a few years um, thinking seriously about uh, University of Chicago, uh, the the fate of disciplines. There are a number of projects at places like the Swedish Royal Academy of Sciences, the Dutch Royal Academy, that have been looking, uh, doing a lot of soul searching about the future of the humanities. And as I watch those play out in some contexts. I mean, in some of those, at least the Dutch context, I I sit in some pretty high-level discussion. There are disturbing uses of language. Um, Maybe not disturbing uses of language, but the language doesn't exactly align with the concept or the meaning behind it. So for example, um, one hears phrases like knowledge valorization or social responsibility, social relevance. Now, social responsibility is a great thing. Social relevance what could be finer. The valorization of knowledge, terrific. But what it turns out meaning, actually, is, is kind of um, an, an, a notion of application that, to my mind, is the wrong notion of application. It's work for hire. It's cheap outsourcing of uh, things that should be supported in other sectors of society that are farmed out to the humanities as the lowest-priced uh, bidder. That's not what we mean by this notion of applied humanities. Um, it's It's not a term without some... Some controversy, uh, and as Henry suggested last night, it's uh, you know it's it's a term that when we think of it in the sciences, if we were to think about, for example, in physics, and we have theoretical physics and applied physics, or theoretical math and applied math, it doesn't seem very controversial in that domain. The humanities, because the humanities has often been about either producing people that are sort of generally knowledge generally knowledgeable or skilled, or people who, if they want to pursue the humanities in a in a in an intensive way, go on to become professors who replicate the model. Then, indeed, the work in theory and the work in uh, criticism is that mode is a mode of application, no question about it. We've been very interested in CMS in trying to use application, use encounters with various sectors of the world, use engagements with. Uh, whether it's the educational sector, the business sector, with, with living, breathing humans, as ways to test what we do, as ways to push what we do, as ways to enhance and sharpen our theory. Theory by itself, you know, we we all know, I mean, all of us from the academy know that this year's theory is uh, in, in in 20 years, the one thing you know for sure is there's gonna be a new wave that over overrides it. It's a series of of, of, of accretions, of incrustations. And we can just go back through the history, read any history of Historical history historiography or literary theory, and you have layer upon layer of theories. And it's not that any of them are right and more right than they are wrong. They all yield different things. I, I know my students have been subjected to the world's lamest analogy uh, uh, often in our theory class, and we talk about uh, the orange motif. But you can cut an orange, which is the correct way to slice an orange. Any way you cut it is going to show, is going to yield a truth. But it's always going to yield a partial truth. And if you could chop it two ways, you'd actually get quite a bit more insight. And if you were to press the juice out and analyze I mean, there's so many ways to go at it. And none of them are wrong, and none of them are right. But one thing that really helps to determine the utility, the meaningfulness of one approach versus another, is to see what difference it makes. And that's where the notion of applied humanities really is terrific, as far as I'm concerned, and I think as far as a lot of us are concerned in in CMS. It enables us to sort of test this stuff out, to try it out, to see where the yield is. And and it's a recursive practice. It's something that we learn from and, as I said, pour it back into our thinking about uh, media forms. In all events, that's what we're going to talk about today. This this notion has, has manifested itself in a lot of our research projects. Uh, these are projects that we hope, but this is what you know, we'll hear today, has, has made a difference in the live, lives of some of our students and, um, and certainly our researchers. And so what I'd like to do is call the first panel up here. Uh, the, uh, let's see, that's Pete and Kurt and Scott, Reka, And Niti couldn't join us today, but Matt Weiss has generously uh, offered to step in. Um, we have enough chairs? We do, OK. So three mics, five, five people. Now, one thing I really want to stress about this is that this is, you know, again, the big buzzword at CMS is participatory culture, community, right? This is about us. These folks have been selected, but they're just representatives of a larger whole. We're counting on you folks to contribute to this throughout. So jump in at any point. If you have comments, the only thing I ask is that this is being recorded, so that you stand, come up to the microphones. But it's not as though it's all—it's pres- half presentation and then half Q and A. Feel free to come up at any at any point to uh, to join in the discussion. And I guess uh, so. You've read the bios. I'm not going to, uh, aside from saying, you know, Scott Osterweil, Kurt Fent, Pete Donaldson, Reika Murthy, and uh, Matthew Weiss. Um, now you know the names. The bios are on the on the handouts. What I'd like to do is instead of doing the bio thing, is just maybe talk just a brief statement from each of you about how, where this notion of uh, engaging with the humanities, making them do something, testing them in the world, where that touches your lives, where, where that's something, a practice you engage in, and then we can, Scott, why don't we start with you?
3: Um, so, uh, I, I guess there's, I uh, wasn't ready to be first. Um, There's two ways, uh, (laughs) but that's good. Um, So one of the things I was going to say is I was a theater major, and one of the things you learn as a theater major is how to go on stage no matter what. Um, (laughs) And that actually, I think, what I I thought about, I've been struck. I'm someone who designs games now, and I've been struck with the number of theater majors who I've met in the field. Um, And it occurs to me that uh, if I go back when I was in college in the 70s, Being a theater major, if it was at a school where you didn't just do conservatory practice, but you also did literature and theater history, as I had to do, was really sort of the first kind of notion of applied humanities. Because uh, when we uh, when we undertook a when we looked at a text, we didn't just look at it as literature. We actually had to put on a show. I mean, I had to take. Uh, Shakespeare's Pericles, a play that takes place over fifteen years in seven locations in the Mediterranean, and put it on in a squash court-sized theater with fourteen actors playing thirty-six parts. And That's really about getting into the text and figuring out how to make sense of it. And I think um, games have forced us to do the same thing because games, if you do games, you learn quickly. You can't make a game that just tests people on facts or on knowledge. Games have to be challenge people to think. And you have to meet them where they already are. You can't, you can't drag someone into a game. You've got to give, you got to give them something in a game that they can hold on to, and that, that, that goes with their own passion, and that that, that they can move with. And so, I th- so it's a field that I think that really asks us to look, um, look at what it means to be to ha- to, a have knowledge and B, think, um, and how that actually plays out in some kind of active way, rather than in just a passive way. So. That's enough. Okay. Uh,
4: so, you know, it's good, Scott, that you were first, <laughs> and I could think <laughs> and, and rethink what I was originally trying to say, uh, but uh, in the whole notion of applied humanities has always been for me, I think, really sort of the, the culmination and, and the really essence of what i 've been trying to do also in my professional life and What was really interesting, you know going back because you also referred back to your theater major, um, when I did my studies in in Munich, um, you know, studying German literature uh, and so on. Um, you know there was theory, but I was also in in foreign languages uh, in in uh, German as a foreign language, so really the application also of of teaching and and literature and so on um, and I always thought of and seek for other kinds of inputs into the thinking of uh, theories. And when I did my master's thesis, I actually worked with a a German artist. Uh, And that was an artist who was very much about um, introducing uh, the audience into his own artwork. Uh, And just working with him on my master's thesis was a really a, a changing moment because I could see my own work and the theory from a very different angle. And that has really shaped also the way my thinking has been now with digital media, how to engage the students in in a process of thinking, but also in a process of creation. You know, not just looking at the media, but creating, being um, active in the reconfiguration of media, rethinking how they do things, and what uh, these aspects mean from a very different, from a lot of different perspectives. And I think that's sort of looking at uh, and bringing in other aspects, which really, you know, works very well for the cross-disciplinary approach that also CMS has, has been, um, you know, doing so well. Um, I think is really something that has changed, sort of, and really, uh, you know, sort of created the essence, the applied humanities in in, in my own work, and also thinking about how we <clears throat> go further in that. Uh,
5: yeah, I think uh, I had some question about applied. Humanities I think it's it 's a wonderful idea in some ways i 'm very much not at the center of let 's say the, the the part of applied humanities that interfaces with industry or other other things like that. but uh, the way I got into it was by trying to transform the humanities in a very specific way. I was a Shakespeare teacher, and as Scott said. Uh, Shakespeare uh, is primarily a uh, playwright, however, the pedagogies associated with Shakespeare outside of theater courses were all literary. So how could one acknowledge and study what a Shakespeare play is if in fact it involves performance and it involves text? and each of these and then the key thing is that each of these varies in principle, not as a kind of accident that is obscuring your view of a perfect text. But the texts of Shakespeare are human creations that vary themselves at the point of um, production, and they vary in performance and across cultures in time. And so I started to try to build tools for dealing with video records of performance in the uh, early 90s. and Um, The way this became an applied humanities practice was because nobody else was building the tools that I wanted to get built. And I found that by initiating projects and uh, involving MIT students, I came into a new kind of relationship with what the Institute in some sense is strongest at which is taking people's creativity, taking what they can do, and solving an immediate problem. In this case, it was an immediate um, pedagogical problem of how do you teach materials that cross media. A little later, this became uh, one of the founding principles of CMS was uh, cross media, uh, to study a story phenomenon across all its media forms. So uh, that led to very rich connection with CMS graduate students, but also graduate students in uh, computer science, some of whom ran uh, huge projects themselves, uh, finally, as uh, technical managers, and with Europe's undergraduate UROPs. So I think expanding the text to include media of all kinds and of all levels, from parody to uh, Royal Shakespeare, you know, from uh, jokes to uh, to the Folio, uh, was where I started, and that became more engaged with um, um, with active participation in what I actually think of as educational projects as real world projects. I don't know if that's a heresy of sorts, but I I think we can't ignore the fact that uh, this is part of the real world and in some cases the great audiences that we talk and dream about uh, are the academic, that are students and of of whom there are millions and and who are our primary um, responsibility. Um, I, I wanted to say I think now the task of transforming the humanities is going to be more global it 's going to involve uh, cultural phenomena that cross na- national and li- linguistic borders sometimes in very unpredictable ways and I know that CMS is getting involved in that, and that 's a t- uh, terribly important uh, part of the uh, part of the future um, so I see uh, uh, my participation as involving several of these aspects over over the last 20 years or so.
6: So um, my only um, post-undergraduate experience was here at CMS for a master's. And I never really expected that I would go on in academia. And I still don't expect that I would do that. So, um, But what the two years at CMS has done um, is far beyond what i imagined and i didn't come here thinking that i would do humanities first and then apply it second which you know I, I think there is a lot of concern when i hear just even mainstream coverage of you know the this generation of students and how they see their education they want it to churn out a really great career for them and i already had the really great career um in web production and radio production and I remember everything I was doing was so about um, putting something out in the world that anyone could connect with, and yet we really in our little startup offices and even in my big mainstream media office at NPR, you know we, we didn't we, it was very hard and it, it continues to be very hard to keep in touch with what we're really trying to tap, not just what do people want, but what enriches. I mean, a lot of the work I've done has been for mission-driven organizations that use the word enrich, and inspire, and educate, and entertain as well. So all, all of these things are part of the mission, and yet it's very hard to keep sight of what those things are. So when I came here, I already had those questions in place, and I was able to spend my time finding some answers that have really broadened Um, my understanding of what I was already doing and also what it's done since. Um, I've stayed in media and I've gone from user experience design back to mission-based media, which is public radio, public media distribution. And what I've found is that I'm able now to take this kind of broader understanding of the world and human experience and comparative media explorations um, and I'm able to actually channel that into the work I do. Um, one example is that public radio right now is undergoing an immense transition because they understand that terrestrial radio broadcast is probably not where it's going to be forever. No one's saying it's gone tomorrow, but it's not going to be there forever. So everyone's starting to call themselves public media um, but then the debates in the system about what is public media? Um, what is, is should it be audio dominate, dominant anyway? Um, what does it mean to be online? And then the, the way people go about it, there's so much confusion about how to be a transmedia, organization with an audio preference. Should they even do that? I mean, And and transmedia gets used occasionally as a word, but often it's cross-platform. And often in the process, radio and television get called legacy media, which always makes me very sad. But these are things that I wouldn't have been even aware of if I hadn't come to CMS first and understood this amazing moment. I, I mean, a lot of people who didn't go to CMS in the public radio field understand that this is an amazing moment. I feel a little bit better equipped to help think about what can come next than people who have been either in the field their whole lives or never had this kind of this broader contextualization historically and globally of what goes on and I feel like I do bring that to my work regularly um, and I You know, one other thing that I would say there is that I've worked in a lot of different workplaces, probably more than anyone should by my age, um, including web startups, mobile software startups, public radio production places, and banks, but we won't go into that. (laughs) But what I've seen in all of those is this tendency towards a very functionalist approach to problem solving, where you need to get something done, you need it to succeed, so you go build something. And Henry was talking about this last night, and I know William and I have talked about this many a time. It is very easy to go, to be tempted to just build. And so many of my workplaces have been dominated by the technologists and the engineers, and they're fantastic but they definitely see the work that a lot of the people in this room do as secondary, as slowing things down, as adding drag, as really nice to have, but not really essential. And that continues to be a struggle for me. But again, I come now grounded with the huma- my understanding of the humanities and with CMS's help, so I also feel like I'm not alone when I'm fighting that fight out there. So those are some of my answers.
7: <laughs> okay, so... Like Reka, I was a CMS student, and um, like Scott, uh, I'm into games. I worked in the education arcade uh, before I came to CMS. Uh, I worked in a movie theater, so I didn't really have, you know, a kind of cosmopolitan world uh, kind of experience. Uh, I really came from a very, what I consider to be a very. Uh, kind of uh, limited background. I kind of never really left, uh, kind of uh, not very far away from my hometown. But uh, CMS for me was sort of like a, a grenade going off in my head. And I feel like the last uh, several years of my life have been sort of also being like a forensic scientist trying to figure out, you know, what what exactly happened. But in a in a, in a good way. In a good way because um, it ex- basically exposed me to a lot of stuff I've, in a very short amount of time uh, that I wouldn't have been exposed to. And one of the things, um, one of the things that, I find interesting is that I was in film. I was in film school before I came to CMS. And uh, I sort of didn't understand sort of the, the, the term humanities. It just felt kind of like, does that make other things inhumanities? And, and it, always, yeah. it, always, it always seemed a little, little strange to me. And, and um, I guess the way that I approached the word, and I know it has a long history in, in, in academia, but, but the way I approached it is um, sort of going on with the whole grenade thing. It's kind of like I, I internalized all this stuff, but the way I feel like it really helped me was almost in a very subconscious way. Um, we were exposed to s- so much incredible high theory in such a short amount of time. Um, a lot of it, I remember without remembering, I remember it, right? It's kind of like, you know, I'll be in a conversation five years later, and then suddenly there's like Donna Haraway's in my head saying something. And I'm just like, where did that come from, right? You know? And uh, that, ca- that came from CMS. And and um, for me, uh, the uh, the concept of applied humanities, I mean, applied humanities is not a term I really use, but... To me, a lot of this stuff, going back from film, like I got into film because I just love film, and I didn't even know that that was, you know, film and literature and these other things were considered humanities. I just thought they were like what normal humans do because that's, they want to enjoy life and living before they die because that's, <laughs> because that's what this is all about. And and uh, so for me, uh, a lot of the stuff that I found other people call the humanities were things that just made me feel more human. Maybe that's why they are called the humanities. I don't know. But So when I think about applied humanities, I think about just... Applying myself, right? Just trying to not lose my humanity and trying to be, um, you know, kind of a interesting uh, human being, or, or or really have this kind of passion or uh, about life uh, that comes from. I, there was a I took a creative writing class once, and there was a there was a teacher who uh, read a uh, read a poem that was called "Eating Poetry." And uh, I sort of associated poetry and, and, and a lot of, a lot of um, sort of, you know, high literature with being uh, kind of boring. But he said, there's like a really graphic poem about a guy who was like, he loved poetry, poetry so much he was eating the words and the ink was sort of like coming out of his mouth and it was like all messy and stuff like that. And I thought it was great kind of, you know, carnal sort of metaphor for like, for like, uh, for how much you can love, uh, for how much you can love these things. And I just feel like they, uh, For me, it's just that my experience in CMS, I feel like has enriched me in ways that I don't fully understand, and uh, I feel like I get into situations years later, and I know I'm a changed person, and I know that certain things matter to me, um, even though I don't, you know, have a really uh, necessarily a a strong uh, idea of where they come from, but certain things matter to me that may not have mattered to me otherwise. Like, after I was in CMS, I went to work at a small mobile game company, and we were doing the most kind of boring, frustrating commercial work you can imagine, right? I was asked to make a game for, uh, an advertisement game for Hooters um, to, to, give you, to give you the idea of, of, of going from CMS to, to that. And, um, and you know, so we're getting in arguments about feminism with these guys who are just like, what are you talking about, right? And, and, um, but I mean, you know, that, I mean, you could maybe call that applied humanities, right? They, they were sort of shocked, but... Um, it was, it was interesting, but I feel like a better person for having had those conversations and having had those impulses. And, and it's just, you know, humanities make you a richer human being. And then you just apply yourself, I guess.
1: So, so one of the things I'm hearing in this, in this set of remarks, or a few things I'm hearing, um, if we think about transforming humanities education, I mean, a premise there is that there's a reason to do that. And maybe it's the first two words are transforming humanities. Maybe there's something shifting in our notion of what constitute the humanities. Um, or the elements thereof. For example, textuality. A couple of you have mentioned a changing domain of texts, what constitutes an appropriate text to study. Reika, I know your your thesis was on kind of um, a a wonderful embrace of the media in Central Square as a case study, but little sticky things on walls and spray painted comments, as well as newsstands and ads in Windows and more legacy media as well that were present. I mean, a real problematization of what constitutes the text. Or Scott, to hear you say, and and Pete as well, like, well, what do we do with this text? Is it something we use for an educational purpose? Is it something that we perform or enhance? So it's not maybe just what's the domain of the text. We sit in a moment of expanded notions of textuality, whether trans or inter or all the different ways we could talk about it. We're also at a moment where the notion of something like reading is starting to change, and maybe something like engagement a more robust array of encounters with the text sound like something that's going on. And again, the idea that you might do something more than just reflect, you might actually engage, in a, or even more than interpret, you might actually take the next step of, 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 of thinking about other modes of engagement. And of course, the third thing that's shifting is the context, the, the notion of who we're talking to. And for a long time, the Academy, and especially the humanities, have spoken, in many cases, to themselves. And there have been folks, who, the, the public intellectuals within the Academy, who, who bridge the gap and speak to the public. But it strikes me that more and more of us, part of this notion of relevance is actually not about outsourcing yourself as a cheap, as a cheap labor source, but actually relevance in the sense of speaking to a public, of, of you know, Matt, what you're saying, of, of, of thinking with a public, thinking with our Larger communities about what are the implications of these textual systems or production logics of, of 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 our legacy, but also of our of our contemporary production. But
6: can I actually jump in? You just reminded me of example. And anyone actually, else too, please. Matt, Matt very much um, reminded me. I'm going to give a real world example because I'm sure these guys will be you know focus on the real world of MIT example. Um, so. <laughs> The Public Radio Player is an iPhone app that um, Public Radio Exchange, my organization, put together. And it's transformative in the sense that it brings together hundreds of public radio streams into one place. Most people might assume that, oh, what's the big deal? There actually was never a database to do this. You have about 800 public radio stations, and there's no one place to go to get all those streams. So this was a big deal, and it became um, a project that was as much about the the public radio stations and and the networks collaborating and all this stuff that was kind of internal industry-specific stuff, as well as something that was also just really cool and new for the people out there who wanted to use it. But what this meant was we, we decided that we needed to have a blog that addressed the transformative issues. Now... I'm not sure that that would have happened if I hadn't gotten to push for that more and I'm not sure it would have taken the direction it took if I hadn't gotten to push for that more to say let's be very transparent and open, involve the public in these discussions and the people who have no idea what public radio is may not care and they may not read it but if a few do that's fine. At one point, a station um, general manager wrote this long email about all of his anxieties around what it means to have people be able to access his station or other stations while they're in his market. Um, And so I wrote this response that was very reflective and incorporated a lot of the kind of awarenesses and and round analytical thinking that I had really gotten to hone here. And um, it was very well received by some people. it was definitely more ponderous than my normal interactions with the public. It was, a, it was a nice long essay. And there was a comment at the end where some guy, he didn't put his real name, he was just like, you guys need to get in the car and drive around the block a few times. <laughs> it's like, blah, blah, blah. And I was actually really pleased because it meant one of two things. Either he had read it or, and, you know, took the time to comment, or he hadn't, but he saw the mass of text and understood that this app, that w- that this app had it had warranted a mass of words. And in either case, I had kind of done my job, at least with this one person, that he understood that we weren't just a bunch of people, like, hacking up something and throwing it out into the world. Even if we were doing it imperfectly, at least we were thinking hard about it. So, you know, that that I think was just a great example of, of, of reminding people that they're... There are, there is thinking that can go on, even with the final, even if the final product seems like just something you use.
3: Well, um, speaking to the question that I, one I've thought about a lot uh, about what does it mean to read in, in, in this age. I, I um, as someone who's, who uh, started in performing arts and worked after and uh, worked in television, when I first hit when when suddenly the web. Appeared on my computer in 1994. I remember that the excitement was uh, that it was suddenly reading again. And I don't just mean text on web pages, because um, I mean that even in even in more video um, illustration heavy or video heavy applications, it was the user who turned the page. It was the user who clicked or said, "Let me move forward." And that, to me, seemed like uh, reading had finally. Taken hold in what was previously an electronic media of a transmission media, where all you could do is is watch. Not that there's not a lot of good things that come just from watching, from being an audience, but that suddenly there was a moment when you could, you literally interacted with the text simply by controlling time and turning the page. And and I've realized since that that's in part what games do. That no matter what a game does, if it's not just a railer where you're just you know, forced along at, at a pace that you have no control over. You, as a person who controls the time of the game, is, is engaged in a kind of reading, um, in a kind of continually processing and analyzing. And and I think there are all sorts of interesting things that are happening, and even even reading radio, even the ability to sort of suddenly turn, decide which story you're going to hear, and uh, uh, to lead through it. So I think we're at this really incredible moment where being an audience, uh, being a, a, a viewer and being a reader are are converging, and I ha- happily, I think, in the direction of the reader, um, that I think is a very exciting moment. And um, I, I, I think that's part of what's going on right now.
1: But so I mean, so, it's, yeah. it's interesting, You know, if you think, in theoretical terms, you can go back over a half century when people like Yaus and Isser are Rethinking the notion of the reader into an active reader—a reader that it, it's not about an idealized reading of the text or even what the author meant. There's actually some agency being given to the reader, and that's a there's a been a lot of work in that tradition. But of course, a lot of our work focuses, and that's where I, I don't know about the word reading a lot, of, and like I like the word maybe engagement or something a bit more because a lot of it is about cutting and mixing. A lot of it is about reappropriations, and if I think about what the work that Pete is doing, where you're giving people affordances to. Some, and really interrogate a text in new ways and to and to annotate. Uh, annotation is really f- the fantastic DVD annotation device you've come up with. Or Kurt, when I think of the work of the Hyperstudio and these wonderful ways that enable people to manipulate and reuse, interpretation, if we think of reading as an interpretive act, is something that actually can can manifest itself in far more in in ways that aren't just a sort of flat notion of interpretation but an engaged and a creative act of interpretation Scott with games something games are wonderful because they even challenge our notions of textuality is the is the text a fixed structure embedded in in you know the way we might think of a, of a book or is the text something more of an experiential gestalt that we bring to bear to a series of encounters that different people can play the same game many different ways and those can all be those are all legitimate ways, usually legitimate ways, of working with it. Um, but where's the text there? The text is a rule system, or the text of Nick's work, I think, of here with code and rule. You know, there, there are a lot of ways to think about where's the, what are the organizing strategies, but they're quite different uh, from some legacy media. But even legacy media bring with them this ability to recreate, to, to, to annotate, to, to reinvigorate. Um, Peter.
5: Yeah. Um. Sometimes when you go to the movies, uh, before the movie, there's something about popcorn and not smoking, and then, and then there's something that says, uh, l- uh, "Cinema is the language." Then they put it in four or five different languages. They some of which you may not know. And uh, it is it's not a language. It's, I, I mean, I thought, how can I be at MIT where Noam Chomsky is and listen to this, you know, a language has certain properties and, uh, and uh, cinema doesn't have those properties. But there, there, there is, on the other hand, in most of my work, I'm going the other way. I'm trying to say, to what extent can an experience of a film or a set of images that you find on the web or in a museum... Uh, be attended to in some of the ways in which we read. In other words, it's a kind of, it's one model of close attention and it has certain properties. You, could, you have a stable inscribed thing that you can go back to, that you can define, that you can mark up and annotate if you happen to own a copy, uh, that you can share with others, that you can read aloud in a group and form pedagogies around that. And, um, and so one of, the, one of the continuing needs in transforming the humanities is in a sense to textualize uh, these other media, but also to recognize that when you're doing that, you are changing their nature, and, it, and it's not the primary experience, so if you, it's not the same uh, watching a film, sitting down and watching a film with an audience as it is working it over, or even working it over in a classroom with a small group with the, with the screenplay by your side, but that's one model, right, so one model is kind of continu- uh, coherent uh, diachronic, uh, time-based experience of a play or a film or a ballet or something like that. And the other is this p- the this sort of pedagogical or reworking mode that we've done forever in, uh, in the realm of words on paper, but we now... Ne- ha- Are able to have the tools to do it with film, so you don't have to have an analytic projector or a Steenbeck to be able to, uh, or a thirty-five millimeter slide camera with a bellows, to be able to pick that moment that you want to analyze. So, but but I, I so I think both are important. Pushing the reading idea, we should read across media, read them all in close conjunction, but we should also recognize the limitations of. Of that uh, metaphor. And an, a, another part of what William said bears on the recognition that reading is constructive, that it's collaborative, that it's a two way process. It's not simply a question of reception. And uh, we now are building those kinds of understandings into things, if for no other reason than we have the um, way ahead of the academic use, for example, of video is YouTube, where people can do many of the things that we would have thought as scholarly procedures with, um, with video material, with free tools, uh, without any lessons, uh, right? Then, of course, um, the comments don't keep pace, and sometimes they say, you are an uh, idiot, you know, and then, from then there'll be, you know, things like that. Uh, but once in a while, uh, there'll be, someone will say, well, why... Why did you think, instead of condemning Maria Callas, who's one of the favorites, they'll say, uh, why did you think it was so good? And somebody will answer, and they'll give, a, they'll give an intelligent musicological answer to why she's better. So that's a join. We, we already have fantastic reading, video reading practices out there in the world. What in the ecology of the web and the academy, what, what kind of transformations should we go through to optimize our contribution And it will involve, you know, sifting and maybe dropping some and um, amplifying others and finding a place in an overall community of learning, a lot of which is amateur uh, and a lot of which is worldwide.
4: Uh, Following this, or yes, yeah, good. okay. And a follow on, and also to, yeah. to your remark, I think you know because you you mentioned you know the Wolfgang Iser and and these theories and you know thinking about the the act of reading, you know, which was one one of his works. Uh, this really, you know is in the background of all the work that we do in, in the Hyper studio Because it really what it means, to me at least, it opens up the process of reading. You know, it is exactly this kind of, of engagement. But it's not only the engagement in the process, but also is bringing in one's own experience into, the, into this reading process. So it's really drawing from a lot of different angles and then putting that together. And what the challenge, of course, is you know, how can we translate something that is already embedded sort of in the process of reading you know into into tools into environments that engage the students that motivate the students so that it's not just a task in terms of learning uh, but that it's also something that's intrinsically motivating from what the students can actually do with the text with the media texts, uh, and that has been very much in in, in the in the um, you know, the sort of uh, principle behind all the work and when we did the first metamedia project the Darbalov funded with with henry and and Pete and myself um, the subtitle was exactly transforming humanities education because it actually created a, a very a dynamic environment where the students could become the, the ones who remix, who rethink. You know, in that remixing, but also sharing sort of the, their their ideas about this remixing. It's not only about interpretation, but it's about engagement and rethinking and combining it with other aspects that really you know th- has transformed that in very interesting ways.
0: I'd like to offer a slightly different comment and maybe open it up as a question at the end. Um, When I think about the theme of transforming humanities education, uh, I think of it in at least a couple of different levels. One is, I think uh, of the analogy that Henry was using last night about kind of CMS itself being this sort of crucible that some people are obviously incredibly fortunate enough to be part of and be immersed in and and absorb and and live and breathe it well beyond their time in CMS. But then I also think of people who are not in that crucible. And uh, in a way, I think that's some of the more challenging uh, questions that come to my mind at least are how do we think about people who are not necessarily choosing to go into a CMS-like setting, uh, to be thinking about humanities in the 21st century and to be thinking about, and and your example was terrific, just how you got into this argument with people around, uh, well, we do have to think about something outside of just the technology itself. And I guess with all the headlines that we see every day about uh, the growing emphasis or concern about uh, the need to train more scientists and more technologists, uh, we don't often see headlines about we need to train more humanists. And I'm just wondering, for the sake of, uh, again, just discussion, if it might be worth thinking about not only life, if you will, again, to borrow Henry's Henry's phrase, uh, within the crucible, but also outside it and how... Uh, how MIT might be of some, uh, if you will, thought leadership role in helping people think through this whole question of how do you uh, integrate humanities into broader realms of education?
7: I can say jump, jump in. But the, um, I mean, it's interesting that whole idea of, I mean, for me, it was uh, going back to what I was saying before. Uh, Coming out of MIT and just coming out of academia in general, and then going to this company, it was the culture shock was incredible, right? It was just like slamming into a brick wall, and um, I feel like, I mean, it sounds like the question is about, you know, how do we help? You know, it's like if you've been to CMS and you've been through, you know, what, what we're calling the crucible, um, you know, you sort of come out with a lot of these things ingrained. You're thinking about them and stuff like that, and it's kind of like, how do we sort of get more people thinking about that stuff who don't have the opportunity to go through that intense experience? Um, I guess the way I view it is that um, there's a lot of people who already, who already maybe already are CMS people or maybe already are humanities people. They just don't know it, right? And it's, it's not about, like, necessarily changing people. Like, people are, like, most people are the wrong way, and we need to change them. Um, but I think, I think a lot of these people, you know, you have sort of, if you give people the opportunity to um, or maybe give them some tools to understand what they already know, And uh, you sort of people can discover that that um, that I think they are these kinds of people who do think about these things, who do you know combine their different knowledge of media in all these different ways. And you know, because I think if you go online, if you go on YouTube, and you look at uh, one of the things that fascinates me about the example earlier is you go on YouTube and you do see people who have not gone to CMS, assumedly. Uh, doing, uh, maybe they all have, and I just don't know, but, um, <laughs> but 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 you know, I mean, for example, you look on YouTube for, I like old, lots of old movies, and um, so I've gone on YouTube, and like we watched, I watched A Third Man for the first time a while ago, and thought it was, you know, one of the greatest movies I ever saw, so I went online and was just like looking for like all Orson Welles clips and stuff like that, and, and there's a lot, you know, I mean, there's a lot of that on YouTube, and there's amazing stuff on YouTube where uh, people are really you know, doing these great analysis and comments and people who seem to know a lot about this stuff. They're like, yeah, I read this book and this scene is great. Look at the lighting and blah, blah, blah. And there's, a, and this relates to, you know, his Shakespeare adaptations, blah, blah, blah. I mean, that's all happening and it's not because they went to CMS. so, right, so there's
1: a lot out there. And I think one of, one of uh, to speak to David's point, one, one of the great things CMS has done is provide structures and language for some of these practices that our pe- folks are engaging in. It's giving them visibility, it's giving them some... Well, it's giving people t- tools. I mean, a lot of our, if you look at our research projects, New Media Literacies is all about reaching out to um, the world and, and offering people, offering kids instruments to think differently or to articulate their existing thoughts about media. Uh, C3 is working directly with the corporate world. Um, uh, we have a, a network of researchers, a, a global network of researchers. And this is trying to, again, reach the public you know, th- through the, the vehicles that are already there, reaching the public every day, the existing media systems, in many cases legacy systems, but helping them think through media change, giving them the language and the tools to help reposition what they're doing and to think about what they're doing in a, in a different way. If I think about our games projects, whether in the educational sector with Scott or, or Matt works at Gambit, uh, uh, these are all about sort of pushing, on the one hand, offering robust new models for education, for, for interactive platforms where people can encounter knowledge in new ways, where they can experience ideas that re- in, in ways that are profoundly different from the old textbook approach. And I think you know, the testing is showing terrific results. Or in Gambit's case, an industry that's very much about producing blockbusters, the games industry, here we are really pushing the edges of that. As a, as a you know, But the games are online. The games are being played. The games are winning awards. So again, they're, touching, they're touch points for, for that larger public. And then if I think about the outreach activities uh, that we engage in, and again, turn to Andrew here. But a lot of what we do is pitched at, at a broad public, certainly a broader public than inside MIT. And pot, we do you know this thing is probably being podcast. Everything we do is, is out there for the public. And when, when we look at the hits we're getting online, it tells us people are watching this stuff, and that's terrific. So I think a lot of it's about, sh- about thinking about concepts, and it's certainly the theoretical project we're engaged in. How can we provide conceptual frameworks and containers? How can we provide language? And Henry's been a genius at sort of branding uh, branding, maybe that's the wrong word for this but, a, but coming up with concepts that capture. Uh, the difference in approach that are, you know, as we heard last night, these terms are are really in use in the industry, in the public, in education. So I think we've been pretty successful about that. The question is, how do we become more successful at it? Things are changing fast. How do we keep up the good work? Um, Rekha? Just
6: just quickly, just along the lines of language, um, something I learned at, at CMS that I use all the time is something the breaking down of cliched or patterned thinking um, you know, I find that out in the media fields that I've worked in, there's often um, assumptions about the, the two, usually two sides of the debate. Um, and actually, I, I'm embarrassed to admit this, but I had worked for NPR for five years, and then I had to come to CMS to have a decent conversation about objectivity and balance. Um, because and, and the other day, and, and then how I brought that back out, I mean, I seriously thought objectivity is the goal and you know subjectivity is the bad thing and then i and balance was two sides and i yeah anyway but um just last week I, or two weeks ago i was at a dinner with a bunch of people one of whom is advising the fcc on its future of media project and she starts talking about a very intelligent person starts talking about how we need to get back to more objective and balanced Forms of journalism, and I was able to complicate that. Not totally disagree. I, I kind of understood the spirit which she was getting at, but I can t- I can trace where I was, where I came at M- at CMS, and then what just happened two weeks ago that might actually have repercussions. And I I find that I'm able to do that a lot, um, in and I think that everyone here is probably doing that in their own ways. We're inserting non cliched ways of thinking into the public. And I think people, it's not that people weren't capable of thinking about, about it. It didn't occur to them, but then they can take it and run with it.
1: And this, I mean, you're just evidence of the real impact that we're having, which is you guys. I mean, the people that have come through this program are out there. And that's what's been so wonderful about the, the setup. You know, I, when I first came here, it was like, Henry, we need a PhD program now. And it's like, why we have a master's is because things move slowly at MIT. That's true. But why we also have a master's is the vision is about is about entering very different sectors of, 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 of media at a tangible, direct level. And PhDs track very quickly to university jobs and can help replicate a discourse. But they're not going to be sitting in NPR. They're not going to be sitting as lead designers of, of game companies. They're not going to be working in, in sort of media act- activist uh, uh, groups in Guatemala. I mean, th- we have people everywhere doing amazing things. And it's about direct intervention. And that's really the, I mean, the most tangible payoff of, of what we've done. Um, I- Ian. Thanks.
8: Uh, Ian Condry. Uh, uh, thanks very much. Uh, it's really interesting. Uh, my question is looking ahead uh, a little bit and thinking about the future and, and sort of where we should be putting some of our efforts. Um, and I, I, when I think of applied humanities, I think there's a lot of ways to do it, and I certainly think there's a lot of people in this room who have ideas about the future. Um, but part of it, it seems, you know, being in academia is, you know, how do we activate uh, knowledge, right? How do we make it move and act in the world? And uh, this is sort of following up on, on some of the other comments that have been going on. I mean, it's always concerned me that, uh, uh, you know, when someone says it's an academic question now, right, <laughs> it, it means it's not important, uh, or it's only, it's, it's too late by the time academics get to it uh, to matter in the world, uh, and also it's within its sort of closed circle. Right? It only matters to other academics. And, and that's a, too bad that that's our image. Uh, but I also think we have an opportunity to change that. And then you guys are all doing it in different ways with games, with thinking about how to activate the archive, um, and thinking about being in public media as well. Um, And so my question is, you know, looking ahead, are there things that you could identify that say, you know, if we could do this, right? Or if we could make this kind of connection, uh, couldn't we, we would change the world, right? Things could really change or things might open up in a new way. Um, And I think, you know, the ways that's usually answered, you know, if we could do this, it's usually answered either as a tool, right? A piece of technology uh, that can do something. Or it's a business model, right? If we had a business that could do this or that. But I often feel that in the humanities, we have the sense of the power of new ways of seeing the world, right? New ways, new ways social practices themselves uh, precede and, in fact, or amplify whatever tools or businesses people come up with. Um, and I think that, you know, if we can get the importance of those kinds of connections, ways of seeing, ways of acting, uh, that maybe have a humanistic uh, aspect behind them, that then we get a world where people say, man, we need more media humanists. <laughs> you know, the, those are just the people who can see things that the technologists and the business model people are missing. Um, so that's my idea. I'm actually sure that a lot of people in the audience as well um, have ideas and are, are sort of thinking ahead. You know, if we could just do this or get people to see this or get people to act in this way, it might be a different kind of world. And I guess if the panelists have any ideas of what those might be, I'd be curious to hear.
3: Uh, Ian, I've, I've been since David's question, I, I feel like they dovetail nicely in terms of the question of um, how to how do we speak in response to this notion that we need more science, uh, the true notion that we need more scientists and engineers, but how do we, how do we get people to understand we also need more humanists. And I feel it acutely because if you've ever looked at any kind of software application designed by an, just by an engineer, you you know how much you need um, the human touch. And I don't mean, I mean the greatest engineers of course have both, but uh, but usually just having the discipline of, an, of engineering isn't sufficient. Um, so I, we do need that and I think one, one of the hard things about doing educational games is that, uh, and, I'm, and I hesitate to use the term educational because people always think of school, but when you say you do educational games it's sort of like saying you're, you know, you're the blind date with a nice personality. Um, <laughs> But the reality is that everyone I talk to has some experience in their childhood, whether it's through a game or a book, of the world opening up through an experience that was really educa- that was educational. Whether it was a g- nowadays with the current generation, it frequently was games. Earlier it was books. And there's no reason that, that ought to s- now that uh, there's no reason that, that ought to stop uh with school. And it seems to me that that uh that with the explosion of media, that we ought to be more aggressive about trying to get the kinds of ideas that we are used to putting out in the classroom into forms of popular culture. I think, you know, I think NPR does that to a certain degree. I think, and I'm not arguing that games ought to all be about classroom training. I think the games ought, we need to get people into the game industry who care about ideas more and want, to put, want, want that to animate their games more. Um, I think it's also very. The interesting thing to me is that when I've gone overseas, that uh, that there are other uh, cult, uh, there are other places, other countries, where they would like to capture and bottle some of what Americans have in terms of the ability to sort of produce the creative side of our economy, the producing games and and film, and uh, and so that's really part of our economic advantage right now, and we're not doing a good enough job of selling that. To, to the larger world, so I, I guess I, I, what I'm doing more is amplifying what you're saying than coming up with a great strategy for how to solve that problem. But, but, but I certainly agree. The
1: reciprocal to what you're saying, I mean, it, on the one hand, it is about getting more ideas, people yeah. with ideas, into our media industries, yeah. and not just having, uh, you know, stuff that. Letting the audience work, continue to have the audience work hard, but give them more to work with, I guess, by having more ideas. But it's also about creating more demanding audiences. It's about sharpening the, the, the critical senses of audiences. It's about giving them language and tools to make better use, and therefore better, you know, more, more pressing demands on the media industry. And that's where I think the education side is, you know, the E word is really terrific. And things like media literacy and the games thing are really about also creating the need, the context, the environment. Um,
4: but I think yeah. it's also you know in terms of the, the looking at, at learning um, you know and how the the students our students here at MIT but also in other places get engaged in that process uh, is also something you know the challenge I, I would say is is also, trying to connect them with their media experiences, you know, be it YouTube, Facebook, and so on, with something that's really connected to the more traditional forms of learning uh, that we do here. How can we rethink that in this context? And, you know, Henry's concept of, of transmedia storytelling, I think, is a really interesting way to look at this from that angle as well. You know, we almost need, you know, sort of a transmedia learning concept. You know, how can we move in all these different spaces that so that learning you know, encapsulates and, and uh, is part of more processes in, in our students' daily lives than just, you know, going to a place, going to a computer and doing it there. So how can we rethink that whole process and how, you know, sort of really engaging them in, in, in lots of different ways to think about learning, to think about media in, in very different ways?
5: Well, Yeah, uh, it seems like we have some of the answers, or at least some leads. I mean, one very important thing, and I think the CMS is peerless in this way, uh, is that if you're interested in students' understanding culture, you have to validate their cultural experiences. You know, it's the way of looking at those experiences that we have to offer. But we have to work with real material, that is, things that, that people are care vitally about and we we can shift those a little bit uh right you you know you can start with something uh, yeah, uh, uh film sits right in the middle and it's really interesting for, s- for some people is just what they do I know Matt came in uh, I would have called him a film scholar and you know <laughs> well, what he what he got here uh but uh, uh he didn't you didn't think of it that way right with your interest in. um um what was it uh, forgotten silver in the history of all that all oh, that yeah, stuff yeah, yeah yeah so uh so you have deep interests that people have, and they need to be addressed by a humanities curriculum, and all of that doesn't have to take place in c m s but it takes place across the the uh the humanities where um we're really dealing with things that people care about and um and not with something entirely imposed. Uh, because it's got uh, a high valuation from an academic elite. That is very important, uh, and I hope it survives. I think it will survive, but it now has to live in a world where uh, real analytic things are going on at the folk level, right? And, And their deep engagement with people's own cultural experience. And I think CMS can really be a model there you know, uh, uh, and has already proven its its value. But that one little piece, but I think we have about five that people have mentioned and could talk about. Yeah.
1: No.
9: One of the things that I took from uh, many of your responses on the panel and many of the uh, questions and comments that have been raised since is this idea that the most productive ground or condition for imagining the paradigm of the applied humanities might not lie in the direction of thinking the relationship between the academy and industry or various media industries, but rather thinking the, uh, the, the practice of critical thought about contemporary media at a deeper and more profoundly engaged level. I took this from Scott's points. I took this certainly from Pete's, from from Matthews, and, and in a way, the example of Mark Strand's eating poetry brought this home to me. Right, that if what we do as applied humanists is apply the whole, uh, the the whole person, body and mind, to the objects of our study, then we are in turn. <coughs> demanding of ourselves and of our scholarship and by extension our, our students that they do the same regardless of what object is is uh, is actually being studied. Uh, this isn't a 20th or 21st century phenomenon either. I think of John Keats who, writing in the margins of Milton's Paradise Lost, says that Milton is uh, sagacious of his quarry. He Hunts him down and, and gorges on beauty, right where this idea of like the forcible ingestion the taking in of something that is more than merely cognitive that is more than merely interpretive, so I myself would want to make a bid for preserving the critical utility of reading as a practice and uh, and as an enterprise in which we engage, but i I, I do think, and this is a place where um, uh, for for all of my, um, let's say, fuddy disposition, fuddy-duddy dispositions towards the past, and fundamentally sympathetic with the project of, of CMS and an applied humanities, that we need to reimagine reading as something that takes place in the whole sensory perceptual apparatus of the human organism, which, after all, is where questions of media and mediation begin in the operation of the human senses and so on. So. Thank you.
1: important point noel and I, and I think one thing that we have to make absolutely clear is that it's not an either or there's a there's a binary logic, and I notice it much more in the states than in Europe um, where if one advocates one position there's an assumption that the other is the is being written out somehow and in fact, I would say the 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 theoretical stance and the and the sort of the tradition is alive and quite well, although Diminishing in terms, you know, with appeals for more scientists and engineers, and not more humanists. Clearly, a little bit under siege, and so a. The point I want to make is that it's not an either-or. It's absolutely both. They don't. One doesn't work without the other. And MIT's logo says the Mens and Manus thing says it all. It does take both to work. But secondly, I think um, we're at a moment where. The issue of, of that changing context, the context that's making, that's putting the humanities under siege in some quarters, uh, is about the issue of connecting and the issue about speaking to more than just ourselves. And that's that can be a profoundly theoretical agenda. It's about finding a theory that engages. And, and I think, again, some of the words that Henry has used to capture ways of reformulating thought. Have been terrific terrific demonstrations that basically a theoretical intervention can have profound implications both in how we think and in how we make and um, so it's for me anyway it's and I think for a program it's certainly not an either or it's a it's a it's a both I never took it to you yeah okay well yeah
10: yeah I wanted to jump in in relation to finding that balance because I think The research projects we've done through CMS have been fundamental to achieving the pedagogy that we're talking about here. And they were fundamental not just as a way to fund students, which could have been a cynical way of thinking about why we were doing it. It They were never work for hire for corporation. You know, MIT doesn't allow you to do that for one thing, and for another, that wasn't the spirit in which we entered into it. But it seems to me that what they did was model that bridge. I absolutely think it's important to teach us the kids to think critically, people to think critically, to engage closely with text, to deal with the past, to explore the larger trajectory. But what we did in the, when we moved out of the classroom into the research labs, we brought that with us. It was not something that's locked out and we did applied stuff and we did thinking stuff. And production programs often are separated out from critical studies programs at other universities. We brought, the, we brought that history and we brought the theory into the, the lab and modeled ways you bridge from the university into whatever sphere the students were coming into. And we created opportunities for students going into industry, into journalism, into education, into public policy to think through those problems and to apply the theory while they were still here, while they could have some mentorship and support to do it. And it's the research directors and the research projects that we're the cutting edge of thinking about what a pedagogy that was applied could look like. And it's never about devaluing the other side of humanities, but it is about thinking that maybe there's another step we can take, not just teaching our students to think in the classroom, but prepare them for thinking in these other settings that we've been talking about.
1: And there's a terrific synergy there, it strikes me. I mean, Matt and I were talking the other day about, uh, Matt, you worked on Revolution when you were a grad student here.
7: But yeah, I mean, I uh, when that was, um, I were, it was at the Education Arcade uh, several years ago. And uh, when I was a graduate student first coming here, uh, I was basically told, you know, this is going to be the RA ship, you know, this is what you're going to be doing. And I remember I didn't want to work on that project. I wanted to work on the, I mean, I wanted to work at the Education Arcade, but sort of people were handed out these different projects. And one of them was based on teaching psychology, uh, psychological concepts from psychology. And then... Um, uh, mine was the history one. It was going to be based on Colonial Williamsburg. And I was like, oh, that doesn't sound fun. I want to do the psychology one, because then I can make some like, awesome, I don't know, game about like, where Freud and Maslow were like dueling or something, or some, some weird thing like that. But, <laughs> yeah. but, but, like, but, but that would be a lot of fun. But, but anyway, it's kind of like, it's like, no, you have to do this. I'm like, OK. So, um, but I remember the way I really approached that was uh, trying to um, see that game, which was sort of presented as an educational game, in the way that I would see a lot of the games I loved from when I was a kid. So I kind of saw it as a challenge to kind of say, what could possibly make this interesting to me? And, um, and, and so that became a really fun project. And it really became sort of, it was an educational game, but it also became sort of, and I don't want to suggest that I was the only person doing it. I was the person who wrote the initial concept document and several other people came involved. And, and basically, um, I collaborated with them afterwards. But the initial idea, it almost became a critique of like normal commercial role-playing games in a way and so that's kind of how I
1: engaged in it and, and it turned out to be a critique of the way that standard histories of this yes, of this yes, era are written in terms of thinking about the dynamics of the American Revolution and it, it became an interrogation of standard historiography which well, is the wonderful part because this it became an intellectual tool as far as my
7: what's fascinating to me is that it became that through me just making a laundry list of what I didn't like about commercial games. And, um, and then through that kind of arose this idea of uh, a game that was critiquing sort of concepts of master narrative and stuff like that, right? Because what I don't like a lot about a lot of commercial games are these kind of deep ingrained concepts of having sort of like one story that plays out. And by trying to just make the game more of a simulation, you're really engaging in this larger cultural practice that is more subconscious, which is just, you know, tendency to sort of see cause and effect as inevitable. And... Um, so anyway, that's how the game turned out. And yeah, afterwards, it was kind of like, wow, this critiques like, our whole concept of what history is. It's like, wow, you know, great. So
3: it was really cool. Uh, after hearing Henry, I, I'm just slapping myself in the head for not thinking earlier about using uh, s- stories to illustrate rather than just talk. And uh, to me, the, the really powerful illustration of what CMS does is, and I, I hope I don't embarrass her by calling her out, but a current graduate student, Michelle Lee, has just done a thesis project around, we spent two years sort of talking about her interest in the Count of Monte Cristo and she developed an alternate reality game that she, or a pervasive game actually, that was played this January during IAP about the game. And the fascinating thing about the game, of course, was it wasn't an adaptation. It wasn't, we're gonna reenact the Count of Monte Cristo. It was rather, we're gonna reenact the ethical issues that are raised by the Count of Monte Cristo. Um, and it was uh, this immensely interesting and complicated Game that she developed, and I'm willing to bet that everyone who engaged in it is going to go back. Most of them probably haven't read the book, and and I'm thinking are going to. And it's a perfect example of the way in which um, engaging with a a new media can really be about the ways we engage, traditionally engage with media, thinking very critically about it, but also being very active about it. So that making a game about *The Count of Monte Cristo* seems to me the best way to read it critically. Uh, not Not the only way, but a very good way rather to, um, and that that's I think that to me captures what what i 've loved about being at CMS is getting to see stuff like that happen and by the way, it's always the students who do the really great stuff I mean research directors, we just get to sit and, and sort of watch i mean it's really it's really wonderful so
1: well, I think this thesis will be online shortly because we tend to post them all, so it's um, highly recommended reading, so we're gonna have to do the lightning round now because we 're getting close to the end, but Michael yes.
11: Okay, just a quick comment picking up from what Ian was saying about how at CMS we can form some of the cultural um, impetus and thought that would then in turn trickle down, I guess, to industry. Um, I, I think that there's something that we could do um, with with sort of these brands that are coming out or these these higher concepts like transmedia, like educational games, where we can start being more specific um, over the next few years about what, what those words mean and, and practices that are specifically involved with them, and then proselytizing that, actually, you know, making sure that that gets into uh, conferences and classrooms and that we have sort of a, a group of practicing professionals that, that, that use those guidelines, like, for instance, transmedia, um, to do a lecture on it and then to do a recent project um, with, with mobile technology based on a, on a film. I didn't really find, and this might be out there, you might want to correct me, but I didn't really find clear definitions of what we're talking about and clear practices of transmedia production. And there was a lot in, in Henry's blog that was helpful, you know, a few examples that I could riff off of and think of. But it didn't seem like it was really collected in, in one space. So practitioners who want to go out and try to apply these have, uh, have cases to work with. And I think that's something that we could, we could do around a number of concepts.
1: Have you seen Henry's um, lecture from last FOE? Okay. Should uh, yeah, it's really like the most quoted thing I've seen in terms of the how many steps? Seven step breakdown? Yeah. Okay. Mary,
12: I know we're getting towards the end of the time. How much time do I have? Reasonably, I'd say five minutes. Okay, that's that's more than enough. So in in this section on applied humanities, there's one particular application that I wanted to a word that I wanted to drop into the conversation here, and that word is library. Okay. Um, you know, I've been sitting. Coming, coming from other meetings that I've been sitting in, this is a word that's been coming up a lot, and I think it's one that we should be thinking about, because it's both a vital application, I think, for what we all do, and a vital resource, and there are f- a few reasons for that, which are all in some ways obvious. One of them is that, of course, as as we move forward, um, we have new needs from libraries. or new kinds of things we need to archive, maybe new kinds of things that we need to do with materials. Um, outside us, in the broader landscape, the sort of model of publishing seems to be changing. Publishers are trying to figure out you know, what they're actually going to be publishing a few years from now. And the model of paying for content has also evolved in ways that really are not favorable to us. And I know there's been a lot of thinking about that going on at MIT. Why is it that now we're producing content which then is licensed back to us at a very high cost? We have to repurchase the database. Every year, we're the producers, the consumers, the evaluators, and we can't buy what we need because this is made so expensive to us. That's really not sustainable. And then in the local context, of course, we're undergoing very stringent budget cuts, which are affecting the libraries in ways I think that we're all going to feel. And so, you know, in some sense, I, I come into this thinking we may be at a sort of an inflection point or even a sort of critical moment. Um, for libraries, something that again that we all that we all use that we all need, and crisis critical moments are also opportunities. Comparative media studies, I think, is a program with its particular interests and um, and also its connections in the institute that's especially well positioned to really intervene. Um, and it, it seems to me that. Uh, in, intervene in thinking about what the future of our library is and what the future of libraries in general is going to be, what the future of publishing is going to be, what the book of the future is going to be. Um, I think that that's something that we should really be thinking about and maybe are already thinking about. And if, if so, that's a conversation I'd like to join. And I'll just mention sort of one one thing. Um, over, over break, I was trying to do a, a piece of work and I found that I couldn't get a lot of the books that I needed. MIT can't afford to buy them. It can't afford to house them on campus. You know, Harvard doesn't have them, and so on and so forth. And so I started thinking about, what would actually be a better model? What would be the optimal model? Would it be digital books that I could just download, right? And then many users could use them. Well, that's not totally optimal, either. It's not there. Right? It requires me to sit in one place. It requires me to use a mouse. I can't do that. I'm sort of have this disability, right? So I start thinking about you know paper books are really good in some ways. they're mobile, they're cheap, they're robust um, and and yet they have these disadvantages that we all know about. One of the things that I you know as we've been having these conversations uh, over the I don't know I guess the past few events about the history of reading and the nature of reading, the history of the book, the nature of the book. One of the things that I think the current cultural formation of the book doesn't allow us to do, and yet which we very much want to do, for instance, is to annotate, right? And this is something that's part of the past of reading that was a normal thing that one did with books was to write in the margins and to engage in dialogues in the margins. And currently, our idea of the book doesn't allow us to do that. If I write in the margins of a library book, I vandalize it, right? Even though, and so in some ways, I lose my thinking about that book, right? I can't engage in a dialogue about that book. Is there some future book that would allow that to happen? Is it a future book that would have the advantages of paper books and the advantages of digital books? What are we going to do with our libraries? I think that, again, this is a conversation that CMS should be engaging in, because we have the possibility not to just, we're going to experience this future. I think we should experience, We should try to shape it, um, both for ourselves and potentially for the country and, and for the world, right? MIT is in a position to do that rather than just sort of letting it happen to us. Thanks.
1: Mary, thank you. I don't have an answer to that, but I have a, a, a revealing anecdote. And I think, how many people did we bring in for the CMS finalists? Was it five people or for, for the new professorship? We brought in about five, I think, right? Five finalists. Six. And of the six finalists, I think five of them, in one on their CV in one way or another, was an association with the Future of the Book Project. Um, so. That's that's good news. I mean, it, it, it's what you're saying is absolutely important, and um, and the folks that we managed to recruit for this position, um, you know, the overwhelming majority are in that track. So that's. Uh, does anyone have a quick word on this? And maybe, maybe just some
4: something that's going on right now especially in, in digital humanities there there are groups forming uh you know consisting of of library people of of uh humanists and 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 computer science people to actually rethink sort of that combination you know the project bamboo comes to mind in you know, a mellon funded uh initiative so there th- there are ways right now that people rethink the role of libraries in connection to scholarly work and in connection to to learning in conjunction with new media—it's probably not rethinking the book in that sense, except you know, sort of the future of the book project. But there's a lot going on in that space, and I think the libraries are clearly rethinking also their role in in academia and so on.
1: Okay, I think we have to close it here. There's going to be a, about a 15-minute break, so if you'd like coffee or ref- refreshments, it's downstairs, third floor, Old Media Lab, uh, and. Some folks will lead you down there if you'd like to partake. And we resume again, Sarah, at a quarter of 11? 11. 11.45. Oh, 11. Thanks. Thank you, guys.